This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. Uh, we finally got a little weather this week in Bozeman. Some cold weather came in. We had quite a bit of snow. Uh, some great skiing. It did drop down to about 25 below on Sunday, which made for some interesting uh, outdoor activities. Unfortunately, Randy missed out on all that cold weather. He was down in Mississippi hunting rabbits and deer. Stay tuned for a podcast on that. He'll have it on Hunt Talk Radio in the future. Pretty interesting stuff. Michael's parents were in town, so he was out having a good time with them. They've been all over the place. And for this week's Fishing Corner, we're gonna have a special in the field segment. Oh, hey, I didn't see you there. Welcome back to the Fishing Corner. Unfortunately, I'm not outside today and doing a segment here in the office instead. I went yesterday. I wanted to show you guys how to catch fish in the winter using winter nymphing techniques. Turns out you need that slow, slow water, and that slow water likes to freeze when it's been sub-zero the past couple days. I apologize about that, but I'll try and do it next week because we got some warm weather coming. I read two books on fly fishing, well, on fishing in general. One is called The Bug Book. The other one is called Understanding Spay. Check them out if you're interested in those two subjects. The bug book, I will say, is very easy. If I can read it, you can read it. And it really helps you understand the ecology. I think that's what it's called, of bugs and aquatic life within your river systems. I swung up a fish on a handmade tube fly. Just a freaking toad really jacked about that this time of the year i'm tying tons of flies i tied up 35 last night restocking boxes for the upcoming season and uh got to spend my 30th birthday on my favorite river here in montana unfortunately it was 20 below and we didn't get to fish that much we did try we were unsuccessful but also was successful a few days before doing the winter nymphing thing and that's kind of the name of the game this time of year like i've said in past episodes nymph them up get your flies deep and slow water i'm going to show you guys next week hopefully hopefully i can do that jason and i might go out and and do some fishing next week for for the youtube channel and fresh tracks plus i appreciate you guys tuning in fresh tracks episode 29 here we go back to marcus all right now for some news in Oregon, they have proposed an amendment to their constitution to declare it a constitutional right to fish, hunt, harvest wildlife, or gather wild foods. This follows a number of states that have somewhat recently amended their constitutions to protect hunting and fishing. Vermont is the only state to have a long-standing constitutional provision to protect their right to hunt, fish, trap, and they've had that since 1777. But in the last 25 years, quite a few other states have started to jump on board, adding that to their constitution, mostly with respect to hunting and fishing. The map on screen shows the 23 states that now have constitutional rights for both hunting and fishing, while the blue indicates states that have constitutional rights to fish. In the past, it likely wasn't much of a concern as hunting, fishing, trapping were just a long part of American heritage. Uh, and people didn't think too much about it. But recently, there's growing concerns of public sentiment towards certain activities that has resulted in states adding these amendments. Of the 23 states, some have smoothly added the amendments, while others have had significant opposition. And in the case of Arizona, when it was brought up, it was actually rejected in 2010. Residents in Oregon did attempt to get this on the ballot in the past, uh, that is the right to hunt and fish, in 2015. But despite obtaining the required signatures, the petition was rejected as it did not comply with the procedural constitutional requirements. 
but also in Oregon there has been an effort to ban all animal cruelty, which includes hunting, fishing, trapping, as well as virtually all livestock production. Individuals attempted to get this on the ballot in 2022 but failed. The End Animal Cruelty Now campaign have already filed a new petition to try to get it on the 2024 ballot. While this attempt seems delusional to many, it did have a surprising amount of traction. Anyway, Joint House Resolution 5 is currently in committee in Oregon, in which it has received public comment for both for and against. It'll be interesting to see if Oregon becomes the 24th state to protect the right to hunt and fish in their constitution. In Minnesota, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness has been safeguarded from hard rock mineral leasing for the next 20 years. The Boundary Waters are known for being a wild sportsman's paradise with amazing habitat for fish and wildlife. On the wildlife side, you can find everything from deer, black bears, moose, wolves, along with a ton of small mammals and birds. On the fishing side, anglers are able to find lake trout, pike, walleye, perch, crappie, and smallmouth. The main method of transportation in these areas is to access it via canoe. And there's over a thousand lakes and more than 1,500 miles of paddling routes that are mapped through this maze of lakes and rivers and streams. With everything the area has to offer, it's become a top priority to protect amongst outdoorsmen. The recent signing of this order will specifically withdraw federal mine leasing on 225,000 acres of public land in the Rainy River watershed, which essentially bans hard rock mining upstream from some of these most popular areas. In Idaho, Idaho Fish and Game has reported that the wolf population has dropped about 13% from last year, which is falling in line with their goal to reduce the wolf population in the state. In the last three years in Idaho, the estimates were holding steady at around 1,500 wolves, which is significantly higher than the department's goal of 500 wolves in the state. IDF&G also announced a new draft management plan, which will soon be available for review and public comment. The plan will give more insight on how they hope to achieve this population reduction, along with illustrating how they will stay within the guidelines of the Endangered Species Act delisting criteria. The delisting criteria calls for 1,100 wolves within the northern Rocky Mountains, of which encompasses Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. It also calls for each state shall manage at least 15 breeding pairs and 150 wolves in midwinter. The same press release that Idaho Fish and Game released detailed how Idaho was the first state to use remote cameras for their statewide population estimates. They captured around 10 million photos and utilized artificial intelligence software to sift through all of these photos and use models to predict the statewide population. I know one thing's for sure though, as soon as they open up the draft management plan for public comment, they're gonna receive emotionally charged comments from all sides. Wolves always bring some interesting people out of the woodwork. In Alaska, the Environmental Protection Agency finalized protections for Bristol Bay against the threat of the proposed pebble mine. The pebble mine has long been a topic of heated discussion as the location is a truly wild area that boasts the world's largest salmon population. Numerous researchers, journalists, filmmakers have been spreading the word over the last 20 years about the potential consequences of the pebble mine. This is an interesting example of a very successful campaign to sway public opinion on a massive scale. It has become very popular to be anti-pebble mine, with anti-pebble mine stickers on the back of vehicles across the United States. Amongst angler communities specifically, it seems to be largely a mindset of just absolutely no pebble mine, it's not worth it in that area. The pebble deposit that they were after has been described as one of the greatest stores of mineral wealth ever discovered in the world's largest undeveloped copper and gold resource, along with numerous other valuable minerals. The open pit mine would have been one of the biggest of its kind in the world. Open pit mines also have a long track record of environmental degradation. Not only the disturbance to the landscape itself, but also the infrastructure and roads, pipelines, human presence, etc. Personally, it's pretty easy for me to be excited about the outcome of Bristol Bay being protected and stopping the pebble mine. 
I've seen photos and videos and have dreamed about visiting this area for hunting and fishing. And I agree that it seems like it's too special of a place for a mine. But at the same time, how many times do we get to say that it's not worth it? Not in my backyard, not here, not there. Uh, and recognize that our demands on resources are not going away anytime soon. And if we prohibit something in our backyard, it's exported to somebody else's backyard, often in developing countries. Well, that's gonna serve as a segue into our discussion, our deeper dive this week, where we're gonna talk about energy development on public land. Where, yeah, I'm gonna be a proponent of exporting the development to literally someone's backyard instead of our public lands. Clean energy, or green energy, I feel like I've just been seeing a lot of articles recently. Yeah. I mean, it, it's been got for the in last... The, uh, in the Wall Street Journal this morning, I got one about this. Murphy's Law of Alternative Energy. Yeah, there's just a lot going around, and it has been for a while. But mm -hmm. just in the last few weeks, it seems like I'm seeing more and more. And then there's also a lot of plans and push for development of clean energy. Quote, clean energy. Quote, Or yeah. green, green. They like to use clean, green, whatever, on public lands. Yeah. And like, I, I guess I, I want to, you know admit that I'm pretty naive to a lot of this stuff and I understand that we need energy, whether it comes from fossil fuels, yeah. solar, wind, geothermal, uh, hydro, hydropower. There's a lot of sources that we can get it yeah. and I get that we need it, but it seems weird to me how much push there is on, to have it on public lands yeah. because they're not making any more land. <laughs> so it's like a pretty rare commodity. How much of so, this green energy is currently being used on public is there any? Used or created, you mean? Um, generated. I guess the land, the green energy source is being right. actively, Come. yeah, utilizing public. Is it a lot or a little I, bit? I don't know that. I don't know an exact number. I know that it does exist, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And there's plans. Like, if you look on the Bureau of Land Management website or the yeah. Department or uh, Interior, yeah. Department of Interior, you'll see a lot of rhetoric towards yeah. their plans for development on public lands. And... I, I don't know. It's just really interesting to me because we, I guess to give it a little background, we know that there's a lot of issues with fossil fuels and, and wildlife and habitat. And here's the, okay, so one more caveat. I like to look at things from the perspective of a public land hunter. Yeah. So it's a pretty narrow worldview. I get mm -hmm. that. But um, I understand that a lot of people looking at this issue are looking at greenhouse gases and CO2 yeah. emissions. That's like their perspective of what's good for the environment. Yep. Me, I look at it and I'm like, well, what about the wildlife and what about the habitat? And you know, what about that? And we know that fossil fuels can have a lot of detrimental effects on like sage grouse, for instance, there's a lot of studies that show that fossil fuel development, whether it's oil or gas can have a lot of detrimental impacts on sage grouse. But then when you look at a solar farm, there's no land left. There's no habitat left if you put right. a solar well, farm. That's the thing. It's like, how do you define green or right. clean energy well, in in relation to, you know, it's not just like habitat, but an ecosystem. Like everything's got to work together. Yeah. So there's elements of it, you know, greenhouse gas emissions or whatever the negative side effect or effect of that thing is. But, you know, like you said, with solar, you know, the footprint of a oil well in comparison to the footprint of just a, a field of solar panels and all that sage grouse and antelope habitat being gone. Right. How green is it? At that point, it's gray <laughs> because it's yeah. might as well be a parking lot. Well, and I think <laughs> gray energy. I like that. <laughs> 
There is, I mean, I'm not saying that, like, the whole greenhouse gas thing is, you no, know, a farce or anything, but it's it's just people stop thinking about it often after that. That's, like, mm-hmm. their view of it. Like, oh, yeah, no right. greenhouse gas emissions or less often, you know. That's, that's, a, typical, that's a win. That's that's, our, that's the green That's energy. our society, right? Take yeah. complex problems, make simple answers, and say, got that one taken care of. Right. But they're, they're not like you guys and you know, like all of us. They're not out there on the BLM lands or the Forest Service lands or whatever, seeing all these impacts. Right. Wouldn't you think it'd be e- an easy argument? These people saying this is they like green energy, so you think they're pro environment to just say, okay, you realize you're destroying all this wildlife habitat and whatnot. Why don't we build a um, a ceiling over all these parking lots and then put your solar panels up there? Like yeah. you'd think that would be a no brainer to them. So I'm I'm curious to why there's such a big push to put it on these public lands. Is, is it cheaper? cheaper that way? I mean, think about this. Marcus and I were talking about that yesterday. If you took every So office, they're not really about the green, they're more about no, the money. I, well, they are well, about well, the green. <laughs> green <laughs> yeah, yeah, green, yeah. Green energy like dollars. And and uh, us diving into this makes it seem like we're discounting the fact that oil and gas has impacts it does oh and we've seen sure, it. yeah we, we've seen it all over so but there seems to be like this blinders full speed ahead because it's under this label of green energy we don't have to account for any of the costs but to your point jace think about if in phoenix a utility company said i'm going to go and rent the south face of every office building every high rise in phoenix and we're just going to put solar panels on there oh, man, that might be way better than building a solar farm out on the BLM ground and having a huge impact out there. But what it would cost to do that, because they're private property owners, they'd be like, yeah, we want, you know, 30 40% of the revenue from the generated electricity. They go do it out on the BLM, and the BLM is like, yeah, sure, you know, whatever, just make sure you complete our permits. Right. And, and there's a very small payment. So... As you were talking, Marcus, I just did a Google search. Biden administration BLM clean energy plan. Because we've heard about all right. of this, right? And there's a press release from the BLM, July 14, 2022. The BLM is currently processing 64 utility scale onshore clean energy products in the West. Or projects in the West on public mm-hmm. lands. These are a utility scale project isn't just like me putting up a little solar panel for my pump um, on my well yeah so these these are going to have huge huge impacts right yeah and i I tried i tried to research this and i there's a lot i i don't understand currently Mm -hmm. but i did see and there was an act or a bill that it has not passed but it's something to do with public lands and cleaner clean energy and I saw that the, one of the stipulations that was that they're trying to find, you know, unproductive land and find land that's, you know, in theory, unproductive, not utilized or whatever right. is the message that they're selling. And then that the royalties from that mm-hmm. will go towards conservation. Yeah. But at the same time, I go back to my argument of they're not making any more land. Right. And what people consider unproductive to one person could be a totally different definition to another. Some of the coolest places I've ever been, there's native grasslands that right. might appear unproductive, but like, no, there's a lot of cool stuff going on out there. Yeah. And like, we might not have big elk or big elk there, but 
there could be a lot of grassland birds or pronghorn or whatever utilizing it. And then once you put up a solar farm, it's all gone. Yeah. Or even a wind farm, like the wind farms also have some crazy impacts. Yeah. The one that, so I got to, I got to put this one out there. It's a, a statistic, <laughs> it's a statistic that often gets shared about bats. So wind turbines are known to kill a lot of bats, like wind turbines, wind. Yeah. The, the big, you know, blades, yeah. the, wind. the ones we got over yeah, there in Judith Gap. We got them all over Montana, yeah. mostly on private land, but there's some stuff on public land as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's estimated it kills hundreds of thousands of bats every year, just mm-hmm. with the cur- with the amount that we have now. And then there, so here's the stat that gets shared. There's a cave that has about 20 million bats in it in Texas. Yeah. And it's estimated that they eat 220 tons of insects every night. Oh. And so when you skeeters. think about killing bats, I feel like, I don't, you know, it might be a little dramatic to like, I might be mm-hmm. pushing it here, but. If you start killing a bunch of bats, you can have, like, cascading effects. When you think about that many insects every night, and then if you don't have a predator towards them, like, what are those insects going to eat? What are they going to, like, the crops that they could potentially kill or even the native rangeland? Like, there's cascading effects that people just don't think about that are outside of just, you know, our desire to have, like, a a bigger pronghorn on that landscape or whatever. I feel like during turkey and bear season, I'm like, how are this, there are this many insects in the first place? <laughs> right, like yeah. I feel like I'm bone dry when I get off the mountain <laughs> in the spring. It's like, Jiminy Christmas. Yeah. Imagine just losing all of that. Yeah. I mean, it would just be a black cloud of mosquitoes. So you <laughs> want me to really piss some people off? Yeah. Well, Go for it. All right. So the history of the United States is urban centers treat the outlying flyover country as if they're just colonies of their empire. Okay. They came and liquidated the bison herds to send everything back for what they needed in the factories. They used to have all the, everything was belt driven and bison hides were good for that. And so we see it time and time again, right? The rural outlying people, you guys, you know, just send your resources, whether it's energy, whether it's whatever, and you guys deal with the impacts. You know, we need a bunch of hydro energy. We need some electricity for this big city. If we're going to ruin this spot, this big city's at, you guys need to go damn that river that all of you depend on. And then you need to send that energy to us. (laughs) Okay. We need you guys to go and denude your landscapes out there. And yeah, they're all public lands. But if you can live out of sight and out of mind, you go crank up the air conditioner because it's hot or... You go and crank up the furnace because you're cold. You don't even think about it. This morning I gassed up my car. I'm like, man, I'm really glad that we have, you know, gas and oil in this country. I'd be walking to work this morning when it's five degrees out. But we all travel these landscapes enough that we're aware that when I filled up my truck this morning or my car, I know that some pronghorn, some sage grouse, some mule deer, somebody is paying for that. Some something. Right. Beyond what I'm just paying. So it it's that realization that causes me to think, all right, what am I doing? What what am I doing to help? What am I doing to improve? Like you said, we need the resources. But yeah. to ignore that these have costs, I think, is the real issue. It's like, oh, we can put a label on it with some funky logo that this was green energy or clean energy and <laughs> I'm, I can just waste as much as, as I want, but we right. really aren't measuring the impacts of that on the landscapes. 
and conserving it smartly like we should any energy. I don't care how it's, you know. Yeah. Oil and gas, whatever. It's going to be impossible to convince people to reduce their energy consumption. I feel like it's just going to continue to go up, especially when you, like, factor in the entire globe. Well, then... I mean, like, to think about developing countries. (laughs) Like, they are not going to... No. They are not going to restrict their energy consumption. They're not. But back to Jason's point, why does so much of it occur on public land? Because it's cheaper, which in effect is a subsidy. Yeah. Right? We are not forcing the American consumer to pay their full costs because we're subsidizing either with cash or we're subsidizing by not making companies pay for the true costs of their impacts, which is still a subsidy, right? Yeah. You either subsidize the revenue side or you subsidize the expenditure side, one way or the other. And so when we artificially lower those costs with subsidy, the, the market, and we like to say, oh, we're a free market economy. No, we're not. When it comes to energy, we are the furthest thing from a free market economy. So we have all this subsidy and tax breaks and other stuff, and there's winners and losers. And what happens? Those subsidies bring the true cost down so people consume more of it. They're less efficient with it because the cost is artificially lower. Yeah. So it, it it's just, again, a society wanting to take a very complex issue, say, well, I solved that one today and not go off and, you know, be bliss in their daily life. Yeah. From your point, though, with the fact that it is a subsidy, I'm sure it's government subsidies are not going away nope. anytime soon. Um, and I know that there are subsidies for like rural development of solar and mm-hmm. and wind and whatnot, but yeah. it, it just blows my mind to so easily go to public lands as a source for it. Mm-hmm. When it's like, why? I mean, to me, the number one driving force should be like putting them on all the roofs, like. All right. the like what Jace was saying, putting them on parking garages, on big commercial spaces, roofs, and 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 it is happening for sure. But it's just like, why are we also going to the public lands? To me, it's like that seems like it should be a last resort. Because the public lands don't force them to pay the true costs in terms of a shared royalty, and costs of reclamation, and costs of bonding, and and costs of all these other things. Mm-hmm. Go to the checkerboard of Wyoming, look and see where all of the development happens now yeah there's private land development but it's way cheaper to do development on the public land so where do you see most of it on the public land even though right over there's some private land well we'd have to pay that person a higher royalty they're going to make us bond at a much higher level they're going to they're going to make us clean up a lot more they're so it just you know these, yeah. these companies aren't here as altruistic nonprofits. They're here to make a profit. So if the public lands are the cheaper place to produce and the higher profit, that's yeah. what we're going to well, see. I guess my hope is that this, the public puts a higher value on having their open space and their public lands and I think Marcus All is that, running for president. Don't we Randy Newberg for president? <laughs> no, we have a Montana Senate race coming up in two years. I or next year. I think Marcus is I would, priming the pump. I would hate that so much. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, it sounds like he's I think he's he's getting himself prepared. That was a that was a pretty oh, no. good No. Um yeah, I don't know. It's just it is it just blows my mind how quick people are to go to that and mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it's like, so I'm curious, I feel like I 
heard you talk about nuclear a little bit, and I've mm-hmm. seen it seems like there's less and less talk about nuclear. More, mm-hmm. I mean, you see it every now and then, but like right. you guys are all too young to remember Three Mile Island. It happened in in the east, I think, in Pennsylvania. It was a nuclear facility that had a bad event, and they were worried about it. And instantly, that put the brakes on all nuclear energy in the United States. Even though every resource that you can use to determine where is the lowest impact, lowest cost, it's yeah. nuclear. Yeah, I mean, what it produces is very, very high. And uh, whether, again, this really gets into politics, but <laughs> the country that's really out in front on nuclear is China. Mm. They, are, they are coming up with very small site nuclear facilities. Yeah. And then just when you think nuclear is starting to get a foothold, Japan had built their nuclear plants right along the coast, right? So when the tidal wave comes in at, what was it, Kobe or wherever, when the big earthquake hit, mm-hmm. washes out and, you know, has impacts there and people get in panic mode. Uh, yeah, it's it's way less impactful to the immediate landscape. But if you have an event, yeah, it's like low ri- low risk but high cost if that risk comes to be. Right. And so Americans have said, no, nah, we don't want to take that route. We're just going to go and pilfer the, the habitat that <laughs> all you folks who love wild things and wild places, uh, you guys are just going to have to deal with this because we don't want nuclear energy. If we subsidize nuclear energy to the degree we do oil and gas or alternative fuels, it'd be interesting to see. And, right. and maybe we do, I, and maybe I just don't see it, but... I read all the tax laws that come out, right? If you if you want to fall asleep, start reading tax <laughs> laws that are coming out of Congress. And the tax code is almost a manipulation of the markets for energy. Okay. When we think about how much we spend on energy, there's going to be a lot of people asking Congress, I want this favor, I want that favor. Uh, but there's such little nuclear energy, we don't really see much of that in the tax code. But oil and gas... Alternative fuels, uh, all this other stuff. Oh yeah, the tax code's full of that stuff. Right. So, when I yeah, I feel like there is room for mm-hmm. developments, but again, it's just like why not rural? And then with wind, to me, it seems like over farmland would make a lot more sense than you know native rangeland or mm-hmm. like try to incentivize farmers to also have wind turbines. I don't know. Yeah. And I guess it, I'm sure there probably are programs that. That do that as well, right. but yeah, in anyway, some places like, there are. But again, farmland is usually private, right? And that private landowner is going to want to be compensated for every possible impact. Yeah, the, the noise impact, the disturbance to the land, uh, a road going to the pad, and the loss of that productive acreage, disrupting soils that might bring in invasive plant species. And so the energy producers like mm, hell with that. We'll just. Yeah, we'll just go over here to that yeah. public land, but and well, I know there. Uh, I say all this, not being an energy expert, right? So some some energy experts probably watching this, and they're going to email Marcus and say, <laughs> "That'd be great." You're clueless. E- educate us, please. <laughs> send some emails no, because what some. we're seeing out there, I think that's the source of of this yeah. podcast. Is we well, see it, and it's like, whoa, wait, how green is this? I'm right. with Paul, it's gray. <laughs> what? Yeah, and I admit that I'm very naive to a lot of it, but uh, it's 
the example that I'm familiar with in terms of like public land use is cattle grazing, mm-hmm. which has been a, it's a, you know, very, re- or can be a responsible use of the landscape for sure. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the, what they charge for a federal land mm-hmm. cattle, like what they, they call them AUMs, animal right. unit months yep. compared to like what the free market value of it is, is a fraction. And right, so that's right. like a huge subsidy. And that's like what I kind of grew up like understanding that like that just seems so silly that we charge such a cheap price to graze cattle on public mm-hmm. land. Right. And then when you go to the neighboring private land, it's the, you know, yeah. 10 times, 20 right. times the cost, which is the right. same. It, like to me, it, it, I'm drawing a lot of uh, parallels to yeah. the energy development on it. And so yeah. I think Marcus is going to be the secretary of interior. <laughs> Well, and there's something to be said for, you know, just how, what are the long-term impacts of that when you talk about that scale, you know, for something, you know, we'll use solar as an example, but I can say that I've hunted and been glassing from a knob where I've seen cows, elk, mule deer, and a gas pad in the same view shed, you know, on a landscape, right? And so there's been that diversity when you talk about multiple use, Mm-hmm. where there's, you know, four different, not maybe not competing, but different, you know, users on that landscape. And when you think about just like a broad sweeping, almost elimination of habitat and other scenarios, it's kind of spooky mm-hmm. because, you know, cows and elk and deer and all, they have impacts on the landscape, but it's renewable. If you were to cut back the um, the number of cows on a, piece of ground that grass will come back yeah you know but if you tear up that ground to put in uh, a gas pad or solar panels then they get removed or reclaimed or whatever a lot of times that native grass is never going to come back yeah. it's going to fill in with an invasive or uh, a lesser quality grass that has you know will live in a place that's been disturbed and a lot of these native grasslands need that undisturbed soil to to be it's just, it's spooky to see how this yeah. kind of like finite thing can just be so easily yeah. <laughs> pulled from your grip. And I, I guess I don't know where we're going with this, like in terms. Yeah, you do. Well, well I mean, I Mar- guess Marcus says, what topic I, will get me the most emails? Because he doesn't get enough emails <laughs> in no, a day. There's no like real like, what, call the, to action or well, like. no, I it's an awareness. It's just, yeah. Right. It's just, I guess. People often just look at things too narrow-mindedly, myself included. And there's a lot that I don't understand about this, and so I'm just trying to educate myself on it as well. But I think, yeah, just trying to look at the big picture and then it's just the fact that they're not looking at habitat and wildlife in these plans. And, okay, that's a, that's a lie. They are looking at it, but it just seems Their prioritization like, yeah, of it is it different. Yeah, it seems right. like they're not prioritizing prioritizing the wildlife so, yeah. so anyway so the that's elk, my concern the, elk, the meal deer the the pronghorn the, the sage grass they're the ones who really get to cover these checks that society is writing right as grammy used to say don't write checks that your ass can't cash <laughs> but we're gonna do it anyhow as a society i guess it's <laughs> a great quote to end this episode <laughs> on all right thanks for watching or listening <laughs>